everybody, welcome back to Historical Light, an independent Masonic show focused on the historical events and aspects within Freemasonry. As always, I'm your host, Brother Alex Powers. I want to thank you for joining us again. Uh, tonight we have our co-host, Brother Robert Marshall. Uh, Brother Robert, if you don't mind, go ahead and have you introduce yourself. Uh, greetings, Robert Marshall Hill from Waco Masonic Lodge, actually in the office here at the Lodge, so airing live from a Masonic building. And uh, this is my first episode as a co-host, so glad to be here. Sweet. Welcome aboard. Glad to have you. And our special guest this evening is none other than Brother Nathan Tweedy. Uh, brother, if you go ahead and introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about you. Uh, like I said, my name is Nathan Tweedy. I am the uh, Lodge Historian at Otsego Lodge number 138 in Cooperstown, New York, uh, and uh, also the Area Historian for uh, what is the... Um, Central Leather Stocking District of uh, New York. So we would do our districts by name, not by number. And uh, yeah, so lots of history there. And uh, I'm also an employee of the National Baseball Hall of Fame. And that's where I'm coming to you from. So I'm coming to you right from the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. Sweet. Well, thank you so much for joining us this evening, brother. Uh, looks like you got a lot of history uh, that you care about, and that's perfect for this show. So we're so glad to have you on. Um, I will throw in there and give you some mad props because we have actually tried to record this interview a couple times with brother Nathan and uh, due to, to uh, some technical issues on my part, uh, he's with us again. So thank you so much for hanging in there and coming back and uh, giving your historical knowledge to historical light. Wouldn't dream of missing it, so, don't, so thank you. So, brother, a um, little bit about your personal history. What brought you into Freemasonry to begin with? Do you have family history, or what, what made you make the leap into joining Masonry? Yeah, so plenty of history on both sides of my family. Um, my grandfather uh, was quite active in Masonry. My mother actually was the matron of the Eastern Star chapter in my hometown when I was pretty young. So uh, while she was matron, she was doing all her work that she had to do down at the, uh, the Masonic Temple. And while she was doing that, I was, uh, you know, hanging out in the, the club rooms, playing with the billiards tables, that kind of stuff. So I spent a lot of time in the lodge as a kid. Um, so yeah, I joined as an adult, uh, trying to find that connection. But also, I just have always been someone who's been active in my community. And I was hoping that Masonry would help me do that. Uh, and of course, the history side of things, there's plenty of that as well. So uh, it was a sure. natural fit. And on my father's side, I should say, uh, I'm a dual member of uh, what is now Delaware River Lodge in Delhi, New York. And uh, they are a, one of the newer lodges in New York State as it's a merger of three other lodges. And I joined Walton Lodge, which is my hometown. And uh, my, uh, my father's side members of that same lodge that my grandfather is a part of. So it's, it's pretty cool. Um, but yeah, so I'm a fourth generation Mason or my mother, my father, I should say, is not a Mason, but if we count Eastern Star as a Masonic organization, then fourth generation Masonic organization. So That's awesome, man. Yeah. So where's history come into play for you? Is that something you had a passion in before Masonry or is that something that kicked in afterwards? Yeah, so I have a bachelor's in history from Hartwick College in Oneonta, New York, and I have a master's in American history from the University of Edinburgh in Edinburgh, Scotland. So uh, I've got quite a background in, in history there. Good deal. Good deal. So coming into Masonry with the background of history, um, was it just immediate for you? You're like, holy crap, there's, there's a lot here to dive into. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, even before I joined Masonry, I mean, everyone, uh, I feel like even before the petition period for most guys, it's, uh, well, what can I learn about Masonry, right? And it's all the big names, right? We all, it's kind of cliche, I think, for most of us this is at this point, you know, all the founding fathers that were Masons, and some of them actually weren't, but, uh, you know, all the, the history that just gets thrown at you from the beginning, and it's, it really is an overload uh, if you just kind of dive into it right at the start. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, there was tons of it even before I even put a petition in. Uh, and joining Otsego Lodge is my mother lodge. So joining a lodge that's as old as this one really, again, uh, kind of overwhelming when you start to look at it. But I'm lucky enough to have been, uh, to be in a lodge that's done three different versions of a lodge history book over the years. Nothing quite as extensive as uh, Gardner Lodge's uh, history book. But uh, yeah, we've got, we've got some nice history documented already. That's awesome, brother. Well, so you mentioned you're from, uh, I'm, I'm going to torture this name here, Otsego Lodge. Is that right? Otsego, yeah. Otsego Lodge, number 138. And that's in New York, correct? That's correct. Cooperstown, right. New York. So you guys have, we've chatted on this a bit before. You guys have some substantial history there. And uh, you're going to share that with us this evening. So if you don't mind, we're just going to hand it over to you. And uh, let's hear a little bit about your history's lodge, or um, your lodge's history, better to okay. say. Yeah, so uh, Otsego Lodge, like I said, it's number 138. Uh, we were officially chartered uh, August 14th of 1795. So it uh, seems pretty high of a lodge number for being chartered in the, 19th, or the 18th century. And I'll get to that in a little bit as to why we do have that number. But uh, before I jump into the lodge's history, I kind of want to jump into the history of Cooperstown and Otsego County. So Otsego yeah, Lodge is in Otsego County. Uh, so James Fenimore Cooper is the author of Last of the Mohicans uh, and the Leather Stocking Tales. And that's what kind of gave this region, New York, its name. His father actually was the guy who founded Cooperstown. That's named after him. His name is William Cooper. Uh, so Cooperstown, named after William Cooper. Uh, and he purchased land from um, a former British agent of Indian affairs uh, by the name of George Krogan. Now, George Krogan actually was a Mason. So we had masonry in what is today Cooperstown prior to the founding of the village, which is pretty cool. Uh, it wasn't an official lodge, just the guy who lived here happened to be a Mason. Um, and so in 1785, he purchased uh, the land that is now Cooperstown and he established the village of Otsego in 1786. Uh, it was incorporated as a village by the state of New York in 1807, and at that point the name of the village was changed from Otsego to Cooperstown. And like most of the lodges uh, in this area, our lodge, Otsego Lodge, was named after the town in which it was located, so we were Otsego Lodge. So our lodge is actually older than the incorporated village in which it's uh, located, which That's is pretty awesome. cool. Yeah. Uh, so, Let's get into the history of the lodge. Uh, Brother Elihu Finney uh, was invited to the town of Otsego in 1795 by William Cooper. And uh, he was a printer up in the Albany area of New York. Albany's the capital of New York uh, and was originally named Fort Orange and was really one of the first outposts in New Amsterdam outside of really the metro, what is today the metro New York area. Uh, so some he came down from that area to visit us. Today it's about a 90 minute drive, a little under. Um, but uh, in that time, quite, a, quite an extensive move, as this really was the frontier. Uh, for those of you who've seen the movie Last of the Mohicans, uh, not necessarily set in Cooperstown, but that kind of gives you an idea of kind of what the area looks like at that time. It really is the frontier of the United States, which you wouldn't think central New York is really the frontier, uh, but uh, <laughs> kind of gives you an idea of how far back we really are going here. 
And uh, so Finney moves to Cooperstown in 1795, uh, and he and four other brothers sent in a petition to the Grand Lodge in New York in April of 1795. So uh, the same year he shows up, I mean, April, so early on, right as soon as he arrives, he gets a new lodge uh, petitioned. Um, and the petition was seconded by a brother by the name of Peter Yates. Now, Peter W. Yates was a, a lawyer from Albany, where uh, Finney had come from, and he was a delegate to the 1786 Continental Congress in Annapolis. And for those of you who need a little refresher on that part of history, I know uh, I had to, um, that Continental Congress that met in Annapolis in 1786 was the one that recommended a constitutional convention that led to our current constitution. Uh, so pretty cool we have that connection as the guy who seconded our petition. Uh, and then that petition uh, was granted as a charter um, as uh, <clears throat> in August of that year. And the charter was signed by some of the members of the Grand Line of the Grand Lodge of the State of New York, which included the most worshipful Robert R. Livingston, uh, who his name graces our research library at the Grand Lodge in Manhattan. And uh, the, at the time, junior grand warden, a guy by the name of DeWitt Clinton. Uh, if that name sounds a bit familiar, the Erie Canals often referred to as Clinton's Ditch. Uh, <laughs> and uh, that is named after DeWitt Clinton. So he was the first commissioner of the Erie Canal Commission. And uh, when he became governor of the state of New York, he was the one really pushing for the construction of the Erie Canal, which really was part of the huge boom for uh, New York State in the, uh, in the 19th century which plays a role later on with Brother Finney as well. We'll talk about that too, make that connection. Uh, so a <clears throat> couple big names there on that, uh, on our, our charter. And the cost of our charter was 12 pounds. Now keep in mind, we're at 1795 now. So uh, we're definitely in the American period. And actually the Coinage Act of 1792 established the American dollar. So we're three years after the establishment of the dollar, but the dollar really isn't being used enough as a currency that we're still taking minutes both in pounds and in dollars, which gets a little confusing because they keep switching between currencies. Um, so yeah, so uh, the charter is granted in August of 1795 and the first meeting occurred um, September 1st of 1795. Uh, and the officers traveled up to Albany, I should say, and were installed on that date. So technically not a meeting, but a dispensation was given for them to go become installed officers of the lodge. And the first meeting was actually held March of 1791, or sorry, 1796, I apologize. It's March 1st, 1796. And that meeting was held at the home of Worshipful Master Elihu Finney. Uh, there were five candidates proposed that night. So our lodge grew from four to uh, nine quite quickly. Uh, and then one was voted on later and initiated at the second meeting the same day. Uh, so they initiated uh, the guys the same day they got the, the, um, uh, the, uh, the proposals, uh, their, their um, dispensation. No, the, oh geez, the petition. So they, they got their petitions oh. like, oh, oh yeah, we know these guys. So we're, we're just going to push it through. And I think it's so funny that they, they initiated five guys and then they had another guy who's like, oh, I want to do it. And they're like, oh, we'll do a second meeting. No big deal. Come on, we'll initiate you too. Right. So uh, things a little more flexible, I guess, back then. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> uh, and then the bylaws of the first, uh, the bylaws stated from that point forward, our meeting would be held on the first Tuesday of the month at 3 p.m. Now that has changed over the years. Obviously we can't be a daylight lodge in this town or else we wouldn't get many guys to show up. But uh, 
we do still meet on the first Tuesday of the month as well as the third Tuesday of the month. So it's cool that uh, that part of our, our bylaws has remained constant all the way from the very first meeting in 1796. Now, have you had a chance to actually see bylaws, like the actual bylaws from that time period? So the bylaws, I haven't gotten into that yet. Uh, I'm going through the minutes at this point. Um, but I do know that based on the history from the other lodge historians over the years that uh, the bylaws were amended in February of 1868 to be the first and third Tuesday at 4 p.m. And then I'm not quite sure when we moved from 4 p.m. to 7.30 p.m. But uh, so yeah, we've had the same meeting date, the first and third Tuesday of the month since uh, right after the Civil War, which is pretty cool. That's awesome, man. Well, if you get the chance to get around and actually get to those bylaws, and you're able to find them, let me know. Um, my lodge, you know, here in Gardner, small town, especially God at that time, uh, the original bylaws I was able to find were just very substantial. I was kind of shocked. I mean, you see most bylaws these days, and it's like, one page PDF bullet pointed. Um, I mean, you're talking like a full book <laughs> bylaws for a small Kansas lodge. So I'd be really intrigued to see like what your lodge had in that time period. Yeah, I'll be glad to jump into those and uh, let you know. But uh, yeah, for sure. Sorry, listeners, you guys can't uh, see them. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Bad historical research. <laughs> but yeah, so. Um, that's kind of the, the early part there, but what's really cool is that, uh, so the first meeting was in March, fast forward to October, and uh, at that point they voted, and I'm gonna quote right out of the minutes here, Brother Worshipful Elihu Finney, uh, provide a Bible for the use of the lodge to the amount of $17. Uh, and the Bible was one that, so Elihu Finney was a printer himself, and it was one that was printed uh, not by his print shop. We always assumed it was, because uh, we actually looked at the copyright of the book that we use for all of our meetings. Uh, not actually printed by him. It was one that was huh. printed in 1791, and it's still in our possession today. And actually, it's still the Bible we use for our standard communications. So, uh, wow. yeah, so we're using it still 228 years later. Uh, and recently, we sent it out to go get conserved. Um, and while doing that, our initial response when we took it to a bookbinder to take a look at was, get it out of my print shop. I don't want this here. Um, because really? yeah which is never a good thing to hear right um but uh so he i will say incorrectly uh believed it was the first illustrated bible published in uh, north america wow uh, so as you might imagine if that was the case then yeah you don't want that in your shop for insurance purposes turns no out practice. it's the second bible uh illustrated bible published in north america so, I mean, even even at that rate or several after that is insanely impressive. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that was the uh, question on my head, though, is why the heck are you guys still using it? <laughs> uh, so I'm sure all the fellow lodge historians out there will uh, understand when I say uh, not my choice to do that. <laughs> I've uh, I've been pushing for us to remove it and bring it out only on special occasions, but uh, uh, the, the old bull, we've always used it and we're keeping with lodge tradition has won out, but uh, much to uh, my chagrin and I cringe every time the senior deacon uh, tends to it. So, <laughs> uh, I, I guess I should have answered my own question there. It's the way it's always been done. Exactly. Um, but the good news is at least if we're going to keep using it, we're putting some money into it to make sure it's properly conserved uh, so that we can continue to use it without ripping pages out. Uh, the plastic that was covering the pages that we use uh, are now going to be covered in a an acid-free covering to help preserve. So uh, while I'm not totally happy with uh, the decision of the Lodge to move forward with that Bible, at least we are making steps to make sure it's going to be preserved. 
for sure. You know, I guess the, the one cool thing about that, may, not just the fact of using it, but just still having it, you, you think about the history of your lodge and all the brothers that have gone through your lodge and have knelt before that altar and taken those obligations. Um, you know, our lodge has gone through, I'm sure, many different Bibles. We've got four or five on the shelf that's been used over the years. Um, but just to think of all the brothers throughout history that have used that Bible for their obligation, uh, that, that's pretty powerful to just even just have that still. I know it's not done everywhere, but I have seen lodges that have Bibles that are over 100 years old, and every single brother who took his obligation on those Bibles wrote his name in the front of it. So you have uh, a couple of pages where just everybody who's been obligated in that thing is, is recorded there. That's really cool. That is. Yeah. But in your case, that would be like 25, 30 pages. <laughs> the book of Genesis would be filled up by this point. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but a kind of a tangent here, I know we're really talking about Otsego Lodge, but actually there was a Mark Master Mason Lodge also in Cooperstown for quite a long time. It actually predates the grand chapter of the state of New York, uh, and their Bible is equally old, and uh, that's also being looked at for uh, preservation purposes right now. So uh, it's funny how what we do in Blue Lodge can impact the, uh, the other organizations that we're involved in as well, because we share a lot of the membership, obviously, like most anyone involved in New York right knows if it's in the same place as the Blue Lodge share a lot of that same membership so kind of funny how the conversation starts in one and flows into the other so but yeah. yeah i just think that's pretty cool that our our uh, mark master lodge which is now our chapter predates the grand chapter in new york that is pretty cool um so yeah so the bible that was october of 1796 and then a few months later they're like hey you know what? we should actually build our own masonic hall uh, so in the notes, uh, or sorry, I should say the minutes from uh, March 7th of 1797, they vote to build a new Masonic Hall, uh, not to exceed 300 pounds. And this is where I just get so confused, because when we talk about the Bible, they specifically said $17. And here with the building, they're talking 300 pounds. So why they keep switching between the two currencies? I mean, I kind of understand how currency was kind of fluid at the time, but still... You think the treasurer would be having a, a conniption fit if uh, they kept switching the currencies right. on them. Uh, and what, what blows me away too is the speed of this. So they voted to build the new building on March 7th of 1797. June 24th, the cornerstone was laid and December 28th, the building was opened. Wow. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I can't even imagine a lodge or a building going up that quickly for, for anything in masonry. So that's uh, unbelievable. Sure. Oh, especially a building that time period. I mean, they didn't throw them up like they do today. Right. Yeah. It's, it's a, uh, it's a really cool looking building. I'll have some photos for a little bit later when we talk about kind of the, the progression of the lodge buildings, but uh, yeah, it's unbelievable how quickly that building went up. And what's also pretty cool about that before that, uh, the first few meetings were held at uh, the worshipful master's home. Then after that, um, one of the brothers, Joseph Griffin, purchased uh, a tavern, the Red Lion Tavern. And so meetings from that point forward until the, uh, until the uh, December 28, 17, 1797 meeting, all those meetings were held at the, um, the Red Lion Tavern, which was today the names of the streets, the corner that it's at our Main Street and Pioneer Street. And the current address of that tavern would be 77 Main Street which coincidentally is the same address as the current uh, home of Otsego Lodge 138. Um, so our first meeting held outside of a private home happens to be the exact same location, different building as where we meet today. 
and have yeah. met for the last hundred years. Yeah, so it's really cool. Uh, so nice. When it's a small village like this, you kind of get a lot of that overlap in location. And actually the home, George Krogan, that uh, British uh, agent who was the Mason before Cooperstown existed, he actually lived about a block from where our current uh, um, temple is as well. So it's really cool how it's all right centrally located in the village. Um, yeah. And, and uh, I should note too that uh, right at this time period, the total membership of the lodge was about 103 members which if you think about how rural it really was at that time, it's unbelievable they had that many members on their rules. Yeah, for sure. Was, was there uh, people obviously traveling in for that or uh, was, that, was that area that densely populated at that time? Yeah, there were definitely people coming in uh, to the area for this. Um, my knowledge of the uh, lodges at the time in the other area, the next closest one today is about a 40 minute drive or so. Um, so, I mean, that's a decent amount of distance, about 40 miles or so. Um, and that's to the west of us. Um, that's, their lodge number is, I think, eight. Uh, so they're a little bit older than us. And then uh, um, going kind of northeast of us, there's a few lodges that were a little bit before us as well. But again, those lodges tended to be um, visited by guys from the Albany area. So anyone kind of south of Cooperstown uh, on the frontier area pretty much traveled to Cooperstown. So it's, it's interesting how far guys would have traveled to, to go to a lodge meeting. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then uh, jumping ahead about 10 years, I just think it's really funny. There was a, a notice that came through from the Grand Lodge in New York saying that a member of another lodge was expelled for unmasonic conduct and required all lodges in the state to put a notice in the paper saying that, that man was no longer affiliated with the uh, fraternity. Wow. Um, yeah. And the I just can't even imagine what this guy did for all the lodges in the state to put it in all the local papers that this guy is no longer a Mason. Uh, yeah, especially <laughs> in that time period. Cause I mean, even up to, you know, last few generations, it's been kind of, you know, tricky on uh, announcing somebody as a Mason to begin with. Uh, so yeah, I mean, putting it in the local, I mean, that's, that's putting them on blast, <laughs> right. especially in those days. Yeah. And uh, yeah. So then, kind of shifting gears here. Um, so if we kind of look at what comes right after that, so we're talking 1808 was when that notice came through. Just a few years later, right, about uh, 20 years is when the anti-Masonic period hits. Mm -hmm. And uh, for anyone who's not familiar with the anti-Masonic period, it all starts with uh, the Morgan Affair, which occurred in Batavia, New York. Uh, and if you don't know that story, you can go ahead and do some research on your own. Uh, but uh, <laughs> so Batavia, New York's 199 miles from Cooperstown. So kind of far away when you think about, uh, you know, how far you travel in a normal day, but in the grand scheme of the United States, it's right next door. Uh, so <clears throat> the implications politically that came out of the Morgan affair definitely impacted this region. And as a result, Otsego Lodge felt the, uh, the blowback from that. So from 1826 until 1846, so for a 20 year period with only a few exceptions, Otsego Lodge met once a year. And in that time, uh, they would elect their new officers and they would tend to real estate issues. So the maintenance of the building that the lodge owned, that kind of stuff. <clears throat> and that real estate issues plays a big role at the end of the anti-Masonic period. So from March of 1827, which is six months after the Morgan affair until September of 1847, there were zero degrees conferred by mm. Otsego Lodge. Wow. So, so again, that's over a 20 year period where Otsego Lodge does zero degree work. So 
we didn't go dark, uh, but just as close as you could go to going dark during that period is what they did. Um, <clears throat> and as a result, there were some things that uh, kind of crept up as a result of the one meeting a year. So 1830, so we're three years after that last degree is conferred, uh, Otsego Lodge paid its dues to the Grand Lodge in New York. And this is where the Grand Lodge and Otsego Lodge may have some differing uh, notes and minutes and uh, opinions on what happened. Uh, but according to our records, uh, that was the last time that Otsego Lodge was told, told to pay dues. Um, and as a result of that, um, at some point, uh, the Grand Lodge issued that uh, our charter would be pulled. Mm. <clears throat> it's worth noting as well, I kind of jumped ahead a little bit. One thing that happened between uh, 18, well, happened a little bit before this is that I'm not really sure why yet, but the Grand Lodge in New York changed our number from 40 to 41. So we were Otsego Lodge number 40, and then they, be, we, they made us Otsego Lodge number 41. Not a big deal, one number, right? So back into the, the anti-Masonic period, and we continue to meet once a year. Grand Lodge isn't getting paid, so you can imagine if they're not getting their dues, they're going to pull our charter. That's exactly what they do. Uh, however, no one ever told Otsego Lodge that. No one ever came to take the charter, so we just kept meeting because <laughs> no one told us we couldn't. Um, and then <laughs> uh, fast forward to June 4th of 1848, right? And, uh, and I'm going to quote directly from the minutes here because it's it doesn't get better than this. To me, this is the most stereotypical kind of thing, right? Quote, a member of the profane informed members, a visitor of Grand Lodge, would come to demand the warrant from the lodge. So, of course, we don't learn from Masons ourselves. We learn from some random person that's not a Mason that, oh, hey, Grand Lodge is coming to pull your charter. Um, <laughs> and so um, the senior Grand Warden did arrive, just as it was rumored, um, and he showed up to pull Otsego Lodge number 41's charter. But there's one problem. In New York State law at the time, um, you weren't allowed to keep property and transfer it from like a lodge to the Grand Lodge if uh, something like that occurred, if a charter was pulled. Uh, that property would be transferred to the state of New York. So thankfully, we owned that uh, Masonic Hall. And as a result, the um, understanding of the law the senior grand warden didn't want the state to claim our Masonic hall, our Masonic temple. So um, he basically allowed us to function under dispensation until uh, the Grand Lodge in New York could issue us a new charter. And that's exactly what they did. Yeah, so we've continuously been chartered, even though we haven't continuously been chartered. It's, it's <laughs> good luck finding any other lodge with a history like this one. Yeah, uh, so. <laughs> Ever heard that one before? That's that's mm. pretty continuously so, and repeatedly charted. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So June fourth, eighteen forty-eight, the senior grand warden shows up to pull our charter. June eighth, eighteen forty-eight, Otsego Lodge was notified it would be given a new warrant. So the term warrant still being used. So I keep saying mm -hmm. warrant. I apologize. Uh, that's pulled from the minutes, right? So, so June eighth, they the grand warden, uh, senior grand warden shows to pull the charter. Uh, June 8th, they're told, you can have your charter as soon as you pay the constitutional fee to create your new charter. And that's paid. And then uh, June 17th, the new charters issued. So it took less than two weeks to get the charter issued for the lodge. So they moved quickly. Uh, but I just, 
how, how did that happen is really the question. And uh, thankfully New York state law existed as it did at the time and that allowed us to continue to keep uh, continuously chartered. So that's great. Um, well, and, not only that, but thank God that guy knew that law well enough to not do that because I mean, imagine where that action could have gone if the state would have taken uh, ownership. Yeah, I, I, I can't even imagine what would have happened. Uh, plus, it's worth noting, too, that during the anti-Masonic period, we weren't meeting in the Masonic Hall. We weren't meeting in our temple. Uh, we had a separate location that we were meeting in. Everyone knew where the Masonic Hall was in town. So Sorry. if the members went in there, they knew it'd be trouble. So uh, they didn't that they didn't disguise it well, let's be honest. Uh, sure. and I, and actually, you know what? Um, I think I'm going to jump in and show you guys uh, some of the what I'm talking about here. Yeah. All right. So there we go. Everybody see that? I do. All right. So this is just a, a map of Cooperstown real here, right in the village. So you see the red dot there. That's the location of the National Baseball Hall of Fame. And just to the right of that is actually where uh, George Krogan's uh, uh cabin was so he was that british agent uh, that's where his cabin was so um like i said all right there in that central part of the village uh so the green dot uh so just to the north a block of the hall of fame that is our first lodge building that's the first masonic temple in cooperstown um and there we go and that's the building today uh so nice Nothing too fancy, just uh, your typical kind of federal style uh, building. But the fact that it went up in what, four months? <laughs> uh, sorry, a little bit more than four months, but uh, eight months is what it took to build that and to open it was still unbelievable. Um, and on the side of the building, you'll actually see this. Uh, so we have a, a master's program in museum studies here in Cooperstown called the Cooperstown Graduate Program. And for one of the capstone projects, one of the students went around noting all the historical buildings in town, well, historical homes, and attaching these to them. So even though it is the first Masonic temple uh, in Otsego County, as well as uh, in uh, Cooperstown, it... Uh, um, it got that as well as you notice it was placed on the 200th anniversary of the lodge uh, in 1995. Um, so that's pretty cool. But also on that same building, uh, there's this, which is a little bit harder to read. It's a 1797 house, first Masonic Hall in Otsego County, erected on the 24th day of June, 1797, dedicated to the use of the Brethren of the Light on December 28th, 1797. The Brethren of the Light. That's interesting. Yeah. It's a, it's a cool expression, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, the cornerstone from that building actually currently resides in our current Masonic temple. Uh, it's in our club room and it has the original inscription with all of its Latin on it as well, which is really cool. Wow. Uh, so uh, we're able to preserve a lot of that history still. Um, and then you move up the block a little bit. So this is the flagpole. You see that right there? That's the corner of Main and Pioneer Streets. And you see the arrow up there. So that arrow points to where we met during the anti-Masonic period. Mm. But in this photo, there are three of our Masonic temples. Oh, wow. So, <laughs> and I'll get to all of them in just a second. So this is where we met during the anti-Masonic period, we believe. And uh, to support that, you'll, if you notice the masonry on that, you notice anything kind of jumps out at you? Yeah, the Area 51, for sure. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> So right above where you see it says Toys of Fame, if you look right up above that in the yeah. stonework, you'll see a man with a top hat on. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, I it saw is. a design. I couldn't tell exactly what was going on there at first, but that, yeah. Yeah, so that's a man with a top hat. So um, kind of Masonic, but not really Masonic. And right next to it, this one's hard, even harder to see, but you see the diamond shape built in there. Yeah. And then coming from the top of the diamond straight down, you see a solid line going down, and then it branches out, and that forms a trowel. Hmm. And okay. within that trowel, you'll also see a square and a compass. Hmm. So uh, that's where most of the evidence shows that's where we met the meetings uh the meeting minutes from that period don't actually state the location uh for obvious reasons they wanted to keep that kind of hush hush um but uh based on oral tradition from our lodge as well as other evidence we believe this is where they were meeting and you can tell the the um, tarp is up in that photo uh so this was recently purchased actually at Seagull lodge almost purchased it and uh, uh given how much money has gone into restoring it we're glad we did not <laughs> um but oh, it is do you know was was this building constructed around the time that they would have occupied it or how did they end up or if you know if that's where they were how they end up putting those symbols into the brickwork yeah, so as I'm kind of flipping between those two, you can actually see the date is on the left of this image and on the right of this image. It's 1828. So okay, I see right, it. right in the middle of the anti-Masonic period, actually in the beginning of the anti-Masonic period. So the last degree that we conferred was March 1827. That date says 1828. So, so let's time... go hide, but we're going <laughs> to put some symbols on it. Yep. <laughs> Well, think about though. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> but think about it though. We Cooperstown had a tourist industry at that time, not the same tourist industry we do today. Obviously, baseball drives the tourism here. At that time, it was folks who wanted to come see the locations vividly described by James Fenimore Cooper. They wanted to see Nettie Bumpo's cave. They wanted to go see the Glimmer Glass, which is the nickname for Otsego Lake. So visiting brethren coming into the area might want to know where they could find a fellow brother, especially in the anti-Masonic period. You don't really want to scream hey i'm a mason uh but it's a good way to find someone yeah so that's unbelievable to me but uh, it's actually being restored right now and it's being it was purchased by a, a non-profit and there uh i did get confirmation from them that they are going to restore the uh the facade masonry back to its original state uh so all of that will be preserved so wow. we get the preservation and uh don't have the uh the monetary uh pit that uh that building has turned into so you guys lucked yeah. out on that one for sure <laughs> we absolutely did and uh don't be surprised if we throw a few dollars their way to help them in their efforts uh, understandably so yeah. i mean yeah like you said you know if you guys would have taken that on just the uh the mere cost to that especially with those old buildings and if it's historically registered or anything good lord it gets up there really quick yeah, and it's worth noting, too, that that building was in pretty rough shape, and that entire front wall has pretty much come down, and it's going back up now. With a, It's now a facade front, but still, it's uh, right. It's a lot of work there. I don't think most uh, most lodges could handle that financial burden. So, uh, But yeah, so that's where we met during the anti-Masonic period. After that, we moved to the Finney Block, familiar name. Uh, so originally, that was the location of the Finney Print Shop, and uh, we wound up moving into that later on. And, and uh, I understand the actual original meetings were in Finney's home. Is that right? Correct. Okay. Correct. Yeah. So we went from Finney's home to the Red Lion uh, Tavern, uh, which was on the corner right here, where actually pretty much the photo was shot from, to that first building, which is a block down the street. 
right on the corner as well. You can actually see the old build of the first Masonic temple from the current Masonic temple. So that's pretty cool. Hmm. Uh, and then up to the uh, anti-Masonic one, which at the photo that's on the screen right now, it's just, uh, uh, just up the street from that. And then our second official residence, as far as a, a Masonic owned temple would be this one here, the Finney block. And then you can see the Finney block there in that photo. And then the photo on the right, right there, that is our current building um, right on the corner. Nice. And, and there's a, it, here it is from a different angle. So you can see yeah. our, our globes out there. So we've got, oh, uh, yeah, Blue Lodge. Uh, we've got uh, Chapter. We've got uh, uh, the Knights Templar. And we've got Eastern Star that all meet there. That's and you notice. Awesome. Did you guys construct that or did you just occupy it? So yeah, we just occupied it. And actually right now we've been in that building for 99 years. Uh, yeah, so as the Bible was leaving to go get restored, we're like, wow, this hasn't left this building likely in a century. And that's kind of a cool thought that, you know, uh -huh. the first to take it out from that long. And uh, we've got a, a dentist office that occupies the, the second floor, part of the second floor, and uh, two shops on the first floor. So it really helps us with maintenance costs to have that income coming in. Uh -huh. So you guys and, still own the whole building? We own the whole building. You see where the, um, you can see the, the difference in the front. That's where the building ends. It runs a bit longer in the back there. The lodge room itself is actually up on the third floor. Uh, you see the bricked out windows there. Uh, that is the southern wall of the lodge room. And uh, the east, that, so the, the southeast corner is that uh, top window there. That's where our secretary sits. So he gets a nice breeze when we get a little too warm. Um, <laughs> and while those windows are in the east, they are all blocked from the inside. Uh, so uh, there's not a whole lot of room between those windows and uh, where the, the master would be sitting. So uh, pretty cool. And it's a huge space that most people don't know is right there on the, the heart of Main Street. So it's pretty mm -hmm. cool. But yeah. Um, and so since I've got this up and I'm sharing the screen, I'll jump ahead and just say, so there's all, all four of the buildings plus the Hall of Fame one more time. So on that map there, uh, I saw that Finney's home was on Main Street. Yes. Do we know where it was? Um, I This is just me remembering the best I can. I believe Finney's home was um, across the street from where the Hall of Fame currently is and okay. to the left a little ways. Not very okay. far, just a little bit. Uh, I could be off a little bit, but that's it's right in that area. So yeah, he lived right, right in that area too. Area. Yeah, pretty much everything in... Cooperstown Masonry has been in like a three block radius. So it's very um, cool. Yeah. And uh, speaking of Finney, so nice transition. Actually, the next slide I've got here, that's actually his current uh, state of his grave. Uh oh. Um, yeah. So uh, as you can see, it's toppled. Uh, and you see a few others. So we're not really sure if it was natural because it is on the side of a hill or yeah. if uh, someone decided to push it over. So you see, it's not in great shape. Uh, so actually, we are. Uh, raising funds to help restore his, uh, restore his grave. Uh, it's we, one estimate we got was 10,000. Um, yeah, we got another one that was a little bit lower, but that's not a full restoration either. So that's what we're working on right now. So, uh, we're restoring the Bible, we're restoring our first, uh, master and really the guy who is responsible for us being here, restoring his, uh, his headstone as well. So we've got to go fund me page on that one. Guys for, uh, for taking that on though. There's a lot of lodges that would just, uh, just let it go. Yeah, well, it, the wonderful thing about uh, being in Otsego Lodge is that um, 
they really do understand that we're really lucky to have such a long and, and honored history. Uh, we've had some pretty amazing men come through our doors and we want to do our best to reserve the history for those that come next. Uh, we've been around for almost 225 years and we're hoping it looks pretty much the same in 225 for the next guys, you know, but, uh, but yeah, so I'll, I'll kill the screen share here, but uh, yeah. yeah so that's awesome though, man. It's kind of that uh, whole uh, leave it better than you found it aspect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's what we're, that's what we're trying to do. Um, so yeah, jumping back into it. Um, so yeah, we, we get our, our charter back. We're now at Seago 138. Um, and that was on June 17th of uh, 1848. And we had a registered 44 members, uh, which going back to um, the pre-era. Uh, so in uh, 18, July of 1808, we had a total membership of 103 and then 40 years later, we're down to 44 members. Uh, so there's a lot of factors into that. Obviously, 40 years, you can see a big shift in any organization. But uh, we really took a pretty big hit there. Um, and actually, when we started back up again, there were only nine members that lived within a three-mile radius of the, the Masonic Temple. So most of the guys that were members were traveling in quite a way still at that point. <clears throat> but what's really cool is a couple of years later, on November 12th of 1861, was our first meeting held by Gaslight. Mm. That was so, a big deal. Yeah. And again, uh, one meeting, they said, hey, we're going to do this. We're going to put in gas lights. And the next meeting, they had gas lights. So they didn't Wait, mess around. No. In, in one meeting's time, they came to a decision. They're not still talking about it to today. And they didn't <laughs> even go dark in between. It was one actual <laughs> meeting. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, we uh, we just replaced our roof, and uh, going back through the minutes, we we knew it had been talked about for some time, but it had been talked about since 1965. <laughs> yeah. Oh. And you'll be surprised that they did it that quickly, even though they'd never had a meeting by Gaslight before. For sure. They had well, never I mean, done it that way. Think about the uh, the work that went into it as well. I mean, even even that's impressive just to jump in there and get that done kind of scary if you think about it but impressive at the same time <laughs> absolutely um and then uh just a couple of years later uh we move out of that so that's still in the first building by the way in 1861 okay uh, and then 1865 we start so four years later we start renting rooms at the finney block and then we wind up purchasing that building and renting out the first floor to the united states post office and uh second floor is all masonic so that's pretty cool uh, and then what gets really interesting, it kind of has a kind of getting into like a, a grave and kind of macabre kind of uh, uh, theme here, but really pretty cool when you consider what masonry is and kind of the, the symbolism that we have. So in uh, the 1875, the lodge spent $135, which in 2017 dollars would be $3,061.48. So over three grand they spent to erect a monument over the remains of their brother, Daniel Puck, who was the longtime Tyler of the lodge. Mm. So, Mm-hmm. And then coincidentally, the in two years time, we see the same cemetery popping up two more times in our notes. Uh, so May 1st of 1877, a committee was appointed to purchase a large double plot in Lakeview Cemetery for Masonic burials, which seems like an odd thing to do. Why would we just buy two plots in the cemetery for Masonic burials? We can just buy it at the time we need them, right? Well, then going through the minutes i was curious as to why that happened but fast forward to october 3rd and there was a letter from eastern star lodge number 227 in new york city 
And that letter was thanking Otsego Lodge for the care and attention given to brother James McNelly, who fell sick and died in Cooperstown. And the lodge, Otsego Lodge, took care of his burial for him. Mm -hmm. Nice. Um, so while there's no direct proof to connect those two, it just makes sense that if in May we purchased a plot and then October we received a letter thanking us for taking care of the burial of one of their brothers who passed away while in Cooperstown, that that would be why the plot was purchased. Mm -hmm. uh, but I can't even imagine that today. Like you're traveling, you pass away and the local lodge is like, Oh, we got you. No problem. And they just take care of your funeral for you. Right. <laughs> That's just, I, I, I do know that in the 1800s, that was standard. That was expected, and if you died while traveling or if you died while visiting another city, the lodge would that lodge would bury you with the expectation that their home lodge would uh, repay you expenses if necessary. Really? Yep. So I, I saw that a lot in our history going through it, at least where our lodge paid out. Um, but oddly enough, we were paying out for people dying everywhere as they were traveling or they'd moved away. We didn't show mm -hmm. anything as far as getting money back for it, but that's actually what drove them into a financial hole um, where they ended up having to sell the building as uh, mm. they were too, uh, too giving on those fronts. Interesting. Yeah, that's, that's really cool. It's, it's cool to see how the same kind of tradition then transfers through. And kind of on that token too, here's another story coming up right uh, at that same time period, actually just a couple of years later. It shows, uh, the minutes show that six brothers accompanied the body of the late senior warden of the Grand Lodge in New York to Utica, which is about 40 miles from here. And his remains were then turned over to the um, uh, Knights Templar number three, so Commandery number three in Utica. Uh, so apparently if uh, you're traveling home and uh, you're not gonna be buried in the place where you pass away, your brothers will transport you there, no problem. So pretty mm -hmm. cool how really do at that time period, really take care of brothers if they pass and they're not at home. And, uh, that was all very essential to expectations in Freemasonry in that time. Uh, sort of a life insurance, death insurance policy uh, membership was. Uh, and uh, something I always thought was interesting that they did then, that I actually ran across uh, in the Otsego uh, story, uh, is how we would wear something to signify that one of our lodge members had died. Uh, and so I know here that something has become a black armband that we wear during a funeral. But back in the day, it was something that the worshipful master would declare, all right, everybody's gonna wear whatever it was for the jurisdiction uh, for a month or for three months. Uh, and in Otsego's case, on uh, the death of Finney in 1813, they wore for three months. Uh, very fascinating. I'm jealous, I think, of Otsega in 1800 when George Washington died. They ordered that uh, the morning uh, garb would be worn for six months. Uh, but imagine today, if you wore something like that, not just at the Masonic funeral, but if you were wearing that to work, to church, uh, out to get something to eat, uh, that's going to be something people take notice of. And uh, I, I would imagine appreciate that all these guys around town are physically taking notice of the death of their brother. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it's pretty common practice to, uh, you know, drape the altar for us here in New York, I'm assuming, mm -hmm. same in some other jurisdictions. But yeah, that's just for us. Uh, but I think to really show not just the family, but also the friends and, and the community members who knew the brother that, uh, hey, yeah, he's our brother and we're 
we're still supporting him at this point in his family. I think that's a really cool gesture that I think we should bring it back. Um, yeah. And yeah, it really was kind of up to the uh, the master's discretion as far as what would be worn. Uh, it really wasn't a set item in New York. So yeah. Um, and kind of going with, with wearing things though, it's a, uh, this blew me away when I read it in our notes though, that, um, uh, in, Oh geez, let me check my notes here. Uh, 1891, the district deputy grandmaster visited our lodge at the initiation of a brother. So uh, first degree, right, shows up and uh, he presented the candidate with an apron of lambskin, suitably inscribed, right? That sounds like a standard gift, right? The, the minutes of the meeting continue on with it being the first gift of an apron to a candidate of the lodge. The custom was continued. Hmm? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> does that not strike anyone else as interesting that that was the first time that a candidate of our lodge had been given a white, uh, a white apron of lambskin. Weird. And what, what year was that in again? It was, it was February 17, 1897. I've got an 1870s New York monitor. I'm going to have to go through it to see if it mentions anything about doing that or not. Oh, weird. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, uh, that's interesting. You've got a substantial amount of history already within the lodge before you find them giving out the first apron at that point. That's, well, wow. it, it is worth noting that it specifically states an apron of lambskin suitably inscribed. So then it can okay. use it, it being Could the first be gift. Play. Right. But then the next sentence, and I'm quoting directly from the minutes, it being the first gift of an apron to a candidate of the lodge, the custom was continued. So I don't know if it was just you show up and grab an apron and that's the apron that you use for that meeting. Cause I know that's how most of our non officer members are now. They just show up, grab an apron and go. Uh, yeah. But it just seems strange not to present an apron to, to a member. Well, it, it's kind of intriguing as well. If you guys have seen uh, the presentation by Brother Craddock on uh, uh, Masonic aprons and their history, um, especially back in those earlier time periods, um, aprons were a lot more lavish and respected than they are today even, which is hard to believe. Um, but it could be to the aspect that uh, it was just common for them to make their own or you know, have a, a custom one made. And then maybe around that time, it was uh, just not as common. Hmm. Yeah, it's uh, it, the history of aprons is something that I'll be honest, it's really intrigued me. I'm a huge uniform fan. I love uh, sports uniforms. I love aesthetics of things. I'm not a designer by trade by any means, so strictly a you know, hobby. But uh, the designs of aprons, absolutely amazing over time. And it kind of kind of bums me out sometimes to see just the mass-produced uh, aprons that we tend to use today. I love those customized and the, the cool imagery uh, put on, on those aprons. Well, that's, we usually save it for the end, but that's a perfect segue. You mentioned designing custom clothing and stuff. What is it you do on the side, man? <laughs> yeah, that's a nice transition for the shameless plug, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, so uh, like I said, I work here at the Hall of Fame and uh, I've done research into Masons that are members of the National Baseball Hall of Fame. I've come across 59 of them. Uh, so uh, I want to kind of come up with something kind of cool when I presented my findings at the Hall of Fame Symposium. 
So uh, I made a shirt with this kind of square encompasses with some baseball kind of theme to it with the names of the uh, players on the, or Hall of Famers on the back. And then from there, it just kind of exploded into something I never could have even imagined. Not that it's that big right now, but uh, it's still more than I expected. I was expecting just to make one shirt and that was it. Uh, but uh, yeah, so I have a company called Two Pillars Apparel and we make I make uh, sports themed Masonic apparel, uh, which is extremely niche as you'd uh, expect. And that's what I'm wearing right here. <laughs> Have you reached out to the lodges of which those Hall of Famers were members to see if they would be interested? Uh, so I have not reached out to any lodges. Uh, I have reached out to some shrines. I have reached out to some uh, some valleys, or not valleys, forests from the tall cedars of Lebanon. And mm -hmm. uh, oh, geez, I don't even remember what they're called now. But uh, whatever the meeting organizational structure is for the uh, the sky is it Syats? Uh, I don't remember. I don't know how to pronounce their name. Sorry. But mm -hmm. uh, uh, we have a few items in the collection here at the Hall of Fame. So actually we have two shrine fezes from Ty Cobb, one shrine fez from Rogers Hornsby, the two of them being the highest career batting average for a righty and lefty, uh, mm, yeah. which is pretty cool. And then um, a few other Masonic related items. Uh, and actually another Mason that uh, is a professional athlete that we have some items for has nothing to do with baseball other than the fact that uh, it was played at a baseball stadium, but we have a pair of hockey gloves from Bobby War. Uh, oh, nice. Yeah. He dropped the first puck at the stadium series played at Fenway Park. So. so you're putting the names of the Hall of Fame Masons on the shirts. Is that right? Did I get that right? Yeah, so uh, it depends on the item. So like the jerseys, like the one I'm wearing, they come blank. But uh, if you get in on a pre-order, when they come out, we can get, you know, a lodge name and number or your name and number, kind of however you want that. Uh, I am but... all over that because uh, <laughs> uh, Ted Lyons was a member of my lodge. Uh, and it, it, it just lit me up when I found that out. I'd done seven or eight years of research on my lodge at that point when I ran across his name in our membership. And I said, Ted Lyons, that can't be the same one. And sure enough, it was. Uh, and of course, he was a legend. Uh, so yeah, I'd, I'd love to get one of those. Yeah, it's always interesting to see like how things like that play out. So um, how that whole research started for me is that uh, so my job at the Hall of Fame is working with school groups coming on their field trips to the National Baseball Hall of Fame. And one of the things that schools can do is they can research while they're here. Uh, we have over 2 million documents in our library. Um, it's a large repository of baseball uh, ephemera in the world so uh with that they can come in and we have a file folder on tons of subjects every player who's ever recorded one out or had one at bat at the major league level uh has a folder and so in there i found a file folder under the subjects of freemasons free space masons so i fixed that so it's mm -hmm. one word now uh so it's one word now in our file folders correctly um and in there i found this document uh called brothers at the bat uh which was done by brother jerry erickson out of uh, california and his hobby was finding every single person if they were a um a radio or tv personality a writer an umpire an actual player or an owner anyone who really had any sort of connection to baseball that was a mason um and so this list is actually three pages long. Uh, he, so this isn't even his final copy. Uh, this one is 561 members that are involved in Major League Baseball in some way. Uh, and right at that same time that I started doing this research, uh, the um, Lewiston Library in New York City, part of the Grand Lodge in New York, uh, also happened to have a little mini exhibit on Masons and baseball. So uh, luckily for me, the... 
um, one of the vice presidents here at the Hall of Fame happens to also be a trustee of the library. So uh, he put me in touch with the correct people down there and I got to check out their stuff and their list down there. They were going off as a 600 and some. Uh, I forget exactly how many they had. Um, and from there, the, the ball started rolling and I came across uh, this book in the Hall of Fame's uh, collection called Brothers at the Bat, Freemasonry and Professional Baseball by Christopher Murray. Um, huh. Wow. Yep. Yeah, this is cool. Yeah, and you can see how just it it all started with coming across this and then it just started snowballing. Uh and it just kind of wouldn't stop. It wouldn't let me stop. Uh, <laughs> so for me, when was that book written you just had? So the uh it wasn't kind of goose chase. Yeah, not a problem. Well, it was a session in 1993 and that's when it was written as well. So it was actually printed in Canada by Pyramid Publications. Um in uh, British Columbia. And I've tried to find a copy of this for myself. I've yet been able to find a copy anywhere. And of course, this publisher doesn't exist anymore. So um, trying to find it. But uh, luckily between this, Brother Erickson's research, and then some of my own, I was able to combine those together to get a pretty decent uh, comprehensive list. And then again, coincidentally, uh, a past district deputy grandmaster from uh, Long Island named Kerry Cohen uh, was doing a presentation at the Grand Lodge on his all-Masonic all-star team. Uh, and if he had to create an American League and a National League all-star teams based just on Masons to play each other, who would they be and why? Uh, so I reached out to him and he had a few names I didn't have. I had a few names he didn't have. We kind of shared notes and 59 is the total that I came up with, uh, which right now is about 17% of all inductees. That's amazing. Wow. That's amazing. That's a big number. So after yeah. I came across uh, Ted Lyons' name in our lodge records, it was just on a plain list of names. And I went into our physical vault, uh, our, our record files, and found a folder with his name on it, opened it up. And uh, our secretary during Ted Lyons' career uh, served as secretary for 55 years, the entirety of Ted Lyons' career and, and then some. Uh, and there was consistent correspondence over the decades between the lodge secretary and Ted Lyons as he was having his career halfway across the country, including uh, newspaper articles and things that, uh, based on the letters, I think the secretary would find an article with Ted Lyons in it, send it to him, Ted would send, sign it for him, and then send it back to the lodge with a note to the brothers. Uh, and so I imagine with these 59 guys, there could be something similar in lodge vaults all across the country for each one of them. Yeah, it's no quite, doubt. yeah, it's quite possible, uh, especially the, uh, um, while there might be one brother who's a Hall of Famer, there's quite a few brother combos on this list. So one might be a Hall of Famer, one might not be, but members of the same lodge. So I, I guarantee cool. you there's plenty of correspondences between players and their home lodges. Um, yeah, we could talk about this all day if you wanted to. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot there. <laughs> so going back to your lodge, uh, and still with a small link to baseball, when I looked up uh, your first Worshipful Master, Finney, uh, I saw that the Doubleday legend of inventing baseball supposedly happened on Finney's farm. Is that right? Yeah, so I want to start off by saying, and uh, this is also the Hall of Fame stance, uh, that Cooperstown is not the birthplace of baseball, uh, <laughs> despite, uh, despite what Spalding's commission found. No, that's not true. Uh, the Hall of Fame is in Cooperstown because it's the spiritual hometown of baseball. There you go. All right. Um, but uh, yeah, so according to the, the myth, and it really is a myth because there's, yeah. there's the no legend. truth to it at all. Yeah. So yeah, the legend. Sorry. Yeah. So uh, uh, 
according to the legend, this guy by the name of Abner Graves said that uh, he saw Abner Doubleday invent baseball in Cooperstown uh, on um, June June twelfth, I believe, uh, eighteen thirty nine, and it was on Finney's cow pasture. And he uh, actually Elihu Finney's uh, Elihu Finney Junior was the Elihu was the Finney there, so not uh, the oh, first of his son. Okay. Uh, yeah, so it was his his property, and uh, his son, first worshipful master Finney's grandson, allegedly was the catcher in that game. Okay. I say allegedly. We know there's absolutely no truth to it. Anyway. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, um, yeah. So if you follow the double day myth, uh, yeah. Mason's involved right from the beginning, right? But uh, unfortunately, that's not true. Yeah. Oh, that's a whole. Oh, there's tons of Masonic uh, baseball conspiracies. Uh, but uh, interestingly, though. Um, Finney, uh, his family does have a connection back to masonry again. So if you remember, I, I mentioned uh, um, Clinton's ditch, right? The Erie Canal. And the Erie Canal really was a huge economic motivator in New York State. It really kind of opened up the Great Lakes region to the Atlantic trade routes. And that just became kind of the, the, the interstate system for its time was the Erie Canal. And then obviously other canals popped up as well. Um, but when you're traveling on those barges, it takes a while to go from Buffalo to New York City. And so you want to have lots of entertainment on your trip. So you'd purchase plenty of books. And so Finney's sons uh, moved their print shop out of uh, Cooperstown. Well, they stayed in Cooperstown, but that wasn't their main print shop. They opened another one in Buffalo, uh, which is on the western end of the Erie Canal. And that print shop produced tons of books, most notably the Finney Bible. Um, and yeah. Finney Bibles are Finney Bibles are quite well known and they're quite valuable. Mm -hmm. uh, they published over 138 different printings of Bibles over a 30-year period. And uh, so it's interesting that Clinton, the guy who gave the charter, uh, he was the um, uh, junior grand warden at the time, uh, who signed off on that, uh, also happened to result in the guy who sent in that uh, petition for the lodge his his sons to make quite quite nice uh nice penny selling books on the erie canal that uh clinton was responsible for well there's another pretty important masonic link to the finney bibles uh that that is growing in popularity right now that people are taking a, an increased interest in but of course uh I'll, I'll let you tell the story but uh a very famous person had one of those bibles I'm assuming this is the LDS connection. That's correct. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So, um, oh, geez. First name Smith. Um, Joseph. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. So Joseph Smith, the uh, um, the founder of the Church of Latter-day Saints, uh, used a Finney Bible when he created the Book of Latter-day Saints. Uh, mm -hmm. I guess translated, I guess, would be the correct terminology there. Uh, yeah. But yeah. So, so yeah, that's other than the the popularity of them at the time, that's probably the most uh, known connection with the Finney Bible. And uh, Brother Smith, uh, as I say, brother was was a Mason as well. So that's mm -hmm. uh, another interesting little Masonic connection there coming full circle. Mm -hmm. Your lodge is just tied up in all kinds of neat stuff. Yeah, it's uh, like I said, I'm I was blown away. Uh, even before I signed a petition, I was like, "Whoa, Masonry has such this amazing history, right?" And then I get into I, I didn't know any better. I could have been joining a lodge that formed, you know, last year. Uh, and then I get in there and I'm like, whoa. <laughs> and I just get inundated with, with this lodge history. And to be honest with you, if it wasn't for the fact that we had three previous lodge historians who all wrote, not necessarily the most detailed, but they all wrote a history. And mm -hmm. 
they preserved some of those really cool stories, that was a great place for me to start. Uh, I haven't even scratched the surface on the notes, or sorry, the minutes, let alone the notes attached to the minutes and the uh, the bylaws and everything else that we have kind of tucked away in corners that it's a huge undertaking and uh, digitizing that has become my, my new, my new focus. And uh, I'm going to run out of data or run out of storage before I complete this project. So <laughs> sounds like it. <laughs> yeah. And actually uh, a huge part of that actually comes from uh, Alex's presentation at Masonicon in uh, Attleboro. Was it two years ago now? Yeah, uh, I think it was. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so if you haven't seen that, shameless plug for uh, that presentation, go check it out on YouTube. Uh, great for any lodge historian, some tips on how to how to do it with no budget or little budget. Yeah, uh, just takes a, well, better to say where there's a will, there's a way, basically. You can make it work. Um, but the interesting thing besides that, since that presentation, you know, oddly enough, it's on YouTube or whatever, um, I've had a lot of lodges and individual brothers ask me, you know, more in-detailed questions. So I'm actually behind as always, but in the process of turning that into a step-by-step -step guide book um, that hopefully have out here at some point, um, just to kind of break it down even further than we did in the presentation and just step-by-step, -step, here's how you can get started, here's how you can go, and uh, some of the best practices that at least I've used and had uh, good luck with. So uh, just a point to get it going because, you know, like you touched on, thank God that we had some of these guys in the past to delve in and do that research um, but if we don't continue that. There's no guarantee that anyone else is. And it'd just be a shame to see this stuff disappear. And a lot of it, I mean, especially what I came from in my lodge, uh, if I didn't jump in, the next guy wouldn't have the opportunity because it's literally disappearing before us. So it's, it's a real struggle of time. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I know we've got so many pieces of our history that, I wouldn't say that the quality of them is really degrading quickly, uh, but they're definitely, they're degrading. Um, you can do your best to preserve them, but when you've talked about documents that are pushing 225 years old, you can only do so much. Uh, and that being said, uh, 2020 marks our lodge's 225th anniversary, as well as our 100th anniversary in our current building. Uh, wow. So with both of those coinciding at the same time, uh, be on the lookout for Otsego Lodge doing some cool stuff next year. Um, I'm not going to say anything because I haven't gotten approval yet, but I'm thinking big and I want to make this uh, one that people are going to remember for a while. And refresh my mind. What, what time of year was, uh, was the anniversary? So uh, the charter was granted um, August 14th. That's right. And our officers took their, stations on September 1st of that year and the first meeting was March 1st of 1796. So it's interesting as we kind of go over two years between charter issued officers installed in the fall of uh, 95 and then 96 in the spring we have our first meeting. So. Nice. So not to give info away but if you're planning something when would you do it? Uh, we're hoping to do it in the um, in the fall, um, thinking maybe weekend after Columbus Day. So that's when parking is free in Cooperstown. So, hey. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure everyone's heard my story about going up to Boston, and uh, yeah, the East Coast is not cheap when it comes to renting a car and trying to park. <laughs> so. 
<laughs> that's good news. <laughs> Especially if you get stuck in traffic or lost for a little while. Oh my God. Do you guys have street signs? <laughs> yeah. So uh, New York is better about street signs than uh, say old Boston is. Um, but yeah, it's a little bit better around here. We are in a grid pattern more, more or less than Cooper's. Nice. Yeah. When I, uh, when I asked somebody where the street signs were up there, I, I got told some uh, colorful language. So. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'd start with this, brother. Uh, you mentioned that there's been several books done um, throughout the years uh, documenting the history. When was the last book up to? Like, when, when's the last year that's been documented uh, in writing, suppose? Yeah, so the last publication was done by uh, Worshipful Brother Richard Vang, who was our Lodge historian before me. There was a gap where there was no Lodge historian for a little while, but that was published uh, 1995, so on the 200th anniversary. So okay. luckily, it's only a 25-year period that we need to catch up, so not too bad, especially since uh, a good number of guys in the Lodge right now were members back 25 years ago, so we have the memories as well as the minutes to work off of, not just one. So uh, having both really helps, as I'm sure you know. Good deal. So is there a updated book in the plans? Time permitted, uh, that's the plan. <laughs> uh, we'll see, as I'm sure you know, it's quite the undertaking. But uh, yeah, I'm hoping uh, since it's really only a 25 year period that we really need to cut, get caught up today, I'd love to do a much di deeper dive, but I just don't think with everything else I, I wanna do that we're gonna have enough time to do a deep dive, but I can definitely do uh, a little update if not uh, a little bit more in depth. But yeah, I don't see why we can't do that. That'd be awesome to see, man. But yeah, I, I totally get, like you say, with a big event coming up and everything, it's uh, really easy to spread yourself too thin on some of that stuff. So, you know, the lucky part is, like you said, it's it's not a huge gap since that last uh, documented history has been done. Um, so that that's always a plus. But man, you have got some incredible history coming out of that lodge. So uh, just make sure it gets preserved, man, because that's, yeah, you've got some awesome stuff there. I've got two fun things for us if you guys have time. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, the first is what I think an absolutely artful display of um, insulting by Past Master Finney. Uh, this is from the Otsego Herald about a political rival. Uh, and it says that, quote, the ignorant or wavering peck, that's the name of the rival, had become an anti-federalist and one highly tinctured with Jacobinical principles. Peck is an apostle of sedition, a noisy drumhead, striving to advance his station by scribbling libels and foul defamation. A noisy drumhead? Is that the... Uh... A noisy <laughs> drumhead. Isn't that fantastic? Oh, there's a lot more there to dive into, but I think that may be one of my new favorite insults to use. <laughs> and the other, uh, I've got to figure out how to do this share screen you are doing, uh, whether this is for the show or just to share with you guys. Uh, let's see, where is it? I know I saw it earlier. This is in Zoom. Where is that share? So if you move your cursor down to the bottom, and you see the participants. I do. Uh, Right next to that, there's a button that says share. Click on that, and then you can pick which screen you share. I'm not seeing share. Uh, well, maybe I'm not going to be able to do it. Well, anyway, uh, uh, when I found out we had a Hall of Fame baseball pitcher, I started looking for things on it. There it is. Uh, and 
the video I found is of a member of the Lodge teaching Filipinos how to play baseball in 1944 uh, while he was with the, the United States Marines. Uh, so I think that's going to do it there. Are y'all seeing my screen? Yep, got it up. Uh, so this is on the Lodge website, uh, and uh, this is our Hall of Famer uh, doing a little World War II baseball <laughs> with some Islanders, and it's not going to play, so that worked out well. Oh, there it goes. Maybe. Well, anyways, it should be on there. Uh, there they go. Uh, interestingly, any uh, baseballer uh, would probably notice there, he, he's teaching them a knuckleball. Yeah. Uh, every teenage boy's uh, dread, not the knuckleball. I still hate a knuckleball. <laughs> uh, it, it's pretty neat. And and so, like, what we're talking about while, while this is playing, uh, with these lodge histories, the one you'll be updating, uh, the one Alex has already updated for his lodge, the one I'm updating for mine, uh, as you mentioned, thank God these guys before us went and did this and gave us some a, a blueprint to work with. Uh, in my case, it was just a name in the back of the book in a roster. It said Ted Lyons. That was it. Uh, I recognized the name and uh, went and found the file and found out it was the baseball pitcher. So I go online and I get the whole story about this guy who's a very fascinating figure uh, and uh, ran across this video in the United States Marines archives. Uh, something we wouldn't have had at this lodge, uh, but uh, we now consider to be uh, uh, pretty special. Uh, being able to watch one of our brothers teach uh, Pacific Islanders the game of baseball 70 years ago. That is really pretty cool. Uh... And so lucky, too, because, you know, if, if he wasn't a Major League Baseball pitcher and he was just doing some other cultural sharing, there wouldn't mm -hmm. have been video of that. So how cool is that, that your history is preserved for so many various little reasons there? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it all had to come together. But this is something that should be being done in all historic lodges. Uh, mm -hmm. And you got a lodge like yours. If, if, if a lodge is reaching back to the 1700s, that stuff's there. It's just waiting for somebody to go find it like you are. Yeah, it's, uh, it really, it seems like a Herculean task right now. Um, and that's a good thing, you know? Uh, guys say, you know, oh, sometimes you get bored with masonry. Well, not if you're a lodge historian, you're not. Uh, so. <laughs> exactly. I, I would add to uh, Robert's comment there about uh, should be done in all historic lodges and say should be done in all lodges because True. there's a lot of guys I've ran into that just do not consider their lodge to be important or of any historical significance. And for anyone that's into history, both of you guys know this, you never know where that little bit of info or that, that connecting link is going to be. And by God, I guarantee your lodge out there has some of those connecting links in it. Your history mm -hmm. matters. So many lodges, oh, just, you know, our history doesn't matter. It's a small lodge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I bet it does, though. And, you know, you may not find that link, but if you preserve it, someone down the road it can. So all lodges should preserve your history. And going off of that, I mean, so like I said, I'm a, I'm a member of another lodge in New York. Um, actually, I'm the uh, junior warden of that lodge. So I've got a busy year on uh, both sides. Uh, <laughs> so hey, yeah. yeah, don't be surprised if you don't hear much from me for a while. Um, <laughs> Is but, that Delaware uh, River? 
That is Delaware River, yeah. And uh, Delaware River Lodge, like I said, is three separate lodges that combined. Delhi right. Lodge, Walton Lodge, and Margaretville Lodge. They all merged. And uh, uh, going back to the 1800s, Walton Lodge and Delhi Lodge, they're, uh, between Walton and Delhi, the towns, there's the town of um, Hamden, which, going back to baseball, is actually the first written, rec- uh, first recorded written document mentioning baseball. Mm. Uh, so it's, it's a newspaper article. So uh, farmer basically betting anyone uh, that they can't beat his team of baseball players, which <laughs> uh, gambling and baseball, they go back yeah, to before. <laughs> From <laughs> but, day one. Uh, yeah, really is. That's why rule 21 exists, folks. No gambling and baseball. But um, <laughs> but yeah, so Hamden sits between Walton and Delhi, And there were three gentlemen joining uh, who petitioned to join one of the two lodges. Uh, and there became kind of a turf war over who had jurisdiction over the town of Hamden. Uh, so two guys petitioned, I want to say two petitioned Walton, sorry, two petitioned Delhi Lodge, one petitioned Walton Lodge. And it got to the point where they actually brought in the railroad uh, engineer who was responsible for surveying to survey between the two uh, two Masonic halls to find the middle line between those two. And that became kind of the line of demarcation. Everything on this side is Delhi's jurisdiction. Everything on this side is Walton's jurisdiction. And then uh, fast forward about 150 years and it all merged anyway. So it didn't really matter. Uh, <laughs> but, but we still, it's still cool though. We still have the, the blueprints and the survey lines, everything recorded of yeah. here. This is Walton where they get their members from. Here's Delhi where they get their members from. And it's not even an issue anymore. I mean, Walton or sorry, Delhi and Walton, the, Delaware River Lodge. Uh, that to Cooperstown is about a 60 minute drive. It's about 50 some miles. And I have to literally drive past another lodge to go from one to the other. Hmm. No, no one cares. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then another cool thing too from that lodge that if someone else hadn't dove through the records, I never would have known is that the only duel ever to occur in Delaware County, New York was between two Masons. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. So uh, you mentioned the Livingston Librarian Collection, right? Yes. Uh, so I've been there twice. That's my favorite Masonic building in the entire world. Uh, so I'm jealous that you live so close to it. Uh, <laughs> but I do have a small bone to pick, historian to historian, uh, more specifically Texas historian to New York historian. Uh, and I'll call it a bone to pick, or maybe I'll, I'll call it a favorite to ask. If there's any way you could get in there and uh, sneak out Santa Ana's Scottish Rite patent and send it down to us. Uh, we've been hoping to get that thing for a while now. That's fair. Uh, <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah, so um, can't make promises on that one. <laughs> At least not here. Uh, no, truly, though, uh, that building is absolutely amazing. Uh, and uh, if anyone out there is listening, you get a chance to go to New York City, you're a Mason, and you don't stop by that building you're doing yourself a great disservice. Yeah, I, I am truly blessed to be a member of the Grand Lodge in New York. If, uh, if you go to into the, the actual Grand Lodge room where Grand Lodge is held and look up at the ceiling, uh, that, is, that ceiling was the inspiration of the ceiling on the Titanic. Um, oh, I so, didn't know. I love that ceiling, but I didn't know that. It's uh, Tiffany stained glass windows, right? I don't remember how long, but they're huge in my memory. Yeah, I can't uh, really can't remember much other than that. I believe they are Tiffany. I could be wrong, yeah. on that, but I'm almost positive they are. And that uh, the financier of the Titanic was a Mason, I believe, from the Grand Lodge in New York. And uh, he wanted the ballroom ceiling of the Titanic to match the Grand Lodge in New York's ceiling. That's so, incredible. That was already my favorite ceiling, but that makes it even better. 
So yeah, I, I completely agree with you. If you're a Mason and you go to New York, you got to get to the Grand Lodge in New York. It's right in Manhattan. It's easy to get to. It's right on the F and M lines of the subway. I haven't heard any conspiracies about that one yet. It's on the, <laughs> the F and M lines. So. Uh, yeah, and Houdini's Lodge is in there, and uh, a Broadway Lodge meets there. Garibaldi yeah. Lodge, yeah. I've That's never it. seen a degree there, but I've heard if you want to see one of the most amazing degrees, go to Garibaldi Lodge. Uh, a lot of Broadway workers uh, are in that lodge. So, Yeah, I, I would believe, imagine I, they can do a good production. One would hope, right, if they're uh, <laughs> – they're, theater professionals they can do a decent degree yeah and uh, like i said i've heard nothing but amazing reviews from uh, from their degree work so so where do we go to order one of your uh, freemason jerseys well you can find me on facebook at uh, two pillars apparel uh and link straight from there if not uh two pillars apparel dot equid ecwid dot com all right so you had mentioned is it possible to get custom wording on the back still uh, so depending on what the time is, uh, so if you do go to the Facebook page, there's a link there uh, to sign up on um, Airtables. And from that uh, database, uh, you kind of say, here's the, the sports teams I'm interested in. Here's the sports I'm interested in. Here's the Masonic bodies I'm interested in. And whenever it comes time to do a reorder, so like these are getting pretty low. So I'm going to do a reorder of these here pretty soon. Uh, then that's when you can get the customization done. Uh, so if it's anything that's in stock at the time, no customizations at that point. But when it comes time to reorder, get that in there for the pre-order and we'll get the customization done for you. Sweet. Uh, so, Good yeah, deal. so it's, it's all sublimated. So the, the stuff is dyed into the fabric. So that's why we can't do customization afterward. Uh, but, mm, uh, okay. Yeah, but uh, if, if I get that order placed with the, the, uh, um, the company that does the sublimation, then I can easily get those done. So actually... Uh, I've got a Scottish Rite jersey coming out right now. So a lot of people trying to figure out if they want uh, their Valley name or their name and the, the number 32 under, or one guy who's a 33rd uh, isn't sure if he wants to do 32 or do 33 because it's got the 32nd, not the 33rd on the slide. So Decisions, decisions. I know. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> For double the price, you can have two. Well, that's awesome, brother. I'm definitely going to hit you up on one of those. I can see one with maybe historical light across the back. So possibly. But uh, brother, thank you so much uh, for coming on the show today. And man, thank you so much for preserving the history of your lodge and bringing it here to share with all of us. Uh, it's, it's been an honor sitting with you and hearing about this tonight. You have an amazing lodge. I'm sure you're extremely proud to be a member of. Uh, it, was, it was an honor just hearing about it. So with that, I want to kind of pass it around and any final thoughts, um, Brother Tweedy, we'll give it over to you first. Yeah, uh, well, first, I just want to thank, uh, thank the two of you for uh, being hosts of Historical Light. Uh, Alex, for getting it started and, uh, you know, running with it. But uh, it just, we can't have a good discussion as historians across jurisdictions if we don't have a platform for it. And I really feel that historical light is uh, the first step in getting that taken care of. Um, so uh, not just lodge historians, but anyone who cares about preservation of Masonic history. Uh, I know this has been a huge way for me to dive into my lodge's history. I never even would have thought about doing a documentary, not that I have done one, but uh, that idea is there now because of historical light, uh, sharing those stories of what guys have done and uh, what they are doing. So, so a big thank you to you guys and to all your future guests that you have on. Um, but also uh, just 
don't be afraid to become a historian or a regional historian if your Grand Lodge has them. Uh, <laughs> I woke I woke up one Saturday morning to a phone call that from a number I didn't know, and like most people who have cell phones, you look at it, you don't recognize the number and ignore it. <laughs> It was like eight o'clock on a Saturday morning and I'm like, all right, I'll answer it. And some guy introduces himself and I hear grand historian. I'm like, what? <clears throat> Sorry, you know, kind of woke me up a little bit. And uh, it was the grand historian calling saying, hey, uh, we're looking for a new regional uh, area historian and your name came up and you were highly recommended and we're hoping that you'd pending grandmaster approval, uh, do that for us. And so uh, what my job is now is working to make sure every lodge in my district has a lodge historian so we can really start doing more hands-on preservation at the local level. Uh, so mm -hmm. if you don't have that program in your state or something similar, ask for it. Be the person to take that lead and go for it because if you don't do it, who's going to do it? So yeah, that's uh, pretty much all I've got. Thanks guys. That's that's a great point, man. I'm uh, definitely going to touch on that with our state because we we don't have any kind of push on that. Um, besides, you know, guys like me out there saying do it, and nobody listens. But that's that's phenomenal, and dude. Thank you so much for taking on that role and uh, making sure that gets done. You know, as as a fellow historian, I uh, can totally, you know, just bask in the. Uh, and how great that is to have somebody to enforce that or, you know, remind somebody, oh, yeah, that's something important to do. Um, because, you know, down the road, people are going to want to know about this stuff. And if people mm -hmm. like you and me don't get that done, uh, it just won't be there to enjoy. So, and uh, also, thank you uh, so much for your kind comments. Definitely very humbled. Um, but, Brother Robert, I hand it over to you for any uh, final comments from you. Uh, final comments. I will show off. My uh, Ted Lyons, brother Ted Lyons of Waco Lodge, signed baseball card. Ooh. That's been on display here at the Lodge since I found out about it. Uh, I'll say uh, thanks, brother Twitty. Uh, this has been one of the more uh, uh, fascinating talks I've had on uh, Masonic podcasts and interviews. Uh, I love baseball. I've always loved baseball. I love history. Uh, so this this is awesome. If this is what being a co-host of uh, Historical Light is going to be like, I'm excited to to continue. Uh, I often think of myself as a, a Socratic gadfly, that guy who pops in every once in a while just to say something to kind of goad things forward, uh, usually annoying. But now I'm going to have to change it to noisy drumhead in honor of Timmy. <laughs> Uh, so thanks for letting me uh, join your conversation. Absolutely. I actually do have one final thing. So this is my binder. All right. And in this binder are all the postcards with the plaques of the Hall of Famers. So since Brother Lyons is a member. Oh, man. Look at that. So there you go. Yeah, Theodore cool. Amar Lyons. And on the back, you'll see right there, Texas, number 92. Oh, yeah. You've got us on there. Good deal. Nice. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. yeah so Every Hall of Famer, uh, I've got the, the jurisdiction and the lodge number, except Massachusetts. Uh, Give yep. me some lodge numbers, guys. I know you don't do lodge numbers. <laughs> no. <Right>? <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, Brother Twitty, thank you so much again. Uh, and thanks for spoiling Robert. Now I got to make the rest of the episodes uh, this out of five. <laughs> go. No pressure, right? Uh, but no, thank you sincerely for coming on the show. Uh, it's been a pleasure. So great to have you on. Such great history that we touched on this evening. Um, signing off tonight, I will mention that I'm going to be in Colorado Springs next week. So you might check out some uh, lives I'm planning to do from a few different locations out there. Some Masonic, some 
not. Um, but keep an eye out for that. And until next time, check us out in the Facebook group. That's the Historical Light Masonic Research Group on Facebook. If you guys aren't members, go over there right now, click join, get in on the discussion. Uh, we attempt to keep that as a pure historical group. Uh, there's tons of Masonic groups out there with just, you know, a bunch of random chat. Um, we keep those vetted into just uh, post about Masonic history within that group. So for guys like you and me, it's a great place to chat and it's a great place to uh, share history and share thoughts with like-minded individuals. So definitely go join the conversation there and we'll see you all next time. Have a great night.